people enjoy a good challenge. Many find it quite tantalising to be presented with a particular conundrum which could either be the biggest disappointment they've ever known or the most thrilling discovery they've ever made, but which will it turn out to be? On the TV a while back, there was one of those um, upcycling other people's junk programmes and an old wooden chest was to be repaired and restored and hopefully sold on to make some money. But the chest was locked and if you could pick it up, it was a hefty old thing, but pick it up and give it a bit of a shake. There was clearly something inside, but what was it? Was the value of that chest about to go through the roof when that hidden item was finally revealed? So they went to work gently, carefully opening the box. And they very quickly gave the game away as their once excited faces dropped and a hand reached inside the box and pulled out a single old smelly welly boot. Uh, not exactly hidden treasure after all. Now in many ways a similar kind of thing is being laid before us by Matthew as he records the earthly ministry of Jesus. Just who is this Jesus? Is he worth getting excited over, as so many of the people seem to be? Or is he just a con man and a fraud who we should have rumbled months ago? Jesus is presented by Matthew as this very divisive figure, although it is completely obvious which side Matthew wants us to come down on. Again and again, Matthew piles on the evidence to force you to see that you too need to be asking the kinds of questions that the people were asking of him in his own day. An example of which we'll find in verse 23, which we'll get to in a moment. Is Jesus someone who I am free to take or leave with no consequence? Or is he someone I simply cannot afford to ignore? They're the kinds of questions that Matthew wants to prompt and to put in your mind. That's the kind of question you need to be asking. It's the question Matthew wants to answer for you. So let's press on with his account of the life and the ministry of Jesus from verse 22 of chapter 12. And we're going to look first of all at the first two verses, 22 and 23, under this heading. There's no disputing the evidence. Well, I mean you may want to, but if you'd been there, there would have been no mistaking what had just happened. Now, we'll be coming to the response of the Pharisees under my second point, but for now, uh, note with me this one crucial fact. The Pharisees make no attempt whatsoever to deny or disprove the miracle that Jesus had just done. 
Why don't they? Well, the answer is very straightforward. It would have been ludicrous to do so. They'd have presented themselves as the most ridiculous numbskulls that have ever walked this earth. Why? Because nearly all of these miracles that Jesus did were performed in close-knit communities where everyone knew everyone else's business. The people in these towns where Jesus was ministering, they'd grown up together for generations. As babies, they were probably all delivered by the same community midwives. They lived in the same streets. They played together as children. They went to the same local synagogue. They they worked together. They all went to the same market to buy their food. They socialized together. Like that account that we read of concerning Jesus when he was 12 years old, whole towns traveled to Jerusalem together on the occasions of their great annual feasts. And so as all the crowds were watching on, these people who Jesus was healing, they knew them. They'd grown up with them. Some perhaps even members of their own family. These miracles, none of them are some clever setup performed by Jesus with his disciples acting as the magician's assistants. Look more closely and you'll realize all is not what it seems. No, there's none of that here. There's no clever camera work going on. There's no trick of the light. There's no optical illusions. There's no tampering with perspective. There's no distraction techniques taking place. These people who Jesus is healing, they are not magicians, stooges planted in the audience. Quite the opposite. They are mothers, fathers, children, siblings, aunts and uncles, next-door neighbours, lifelong friends. Then one was brought to him, demon-possessed, blind, mute. This is not a trick. This is not a setup. This is a man whose plight is real, serious, desperate, and known to those who brought him. A man who would have been recognised by many. Look who they've brought. We know him. And in front of them all stands this man who is the embodiment of living in a fallen, sinful world. Demon-possessed. Bound and held captive by Satan. As all of us are in our sinfulness. But this man, in a particularly prominent way, blind, unable to speak, his physical body ravaged by weakness and infirmity, physical senses destroyed and disabled, a physical illustration of what is true of all of us spiritually. All of us spiritually unable to see what we ought to see. Unable to speak of those things we ought to speak of in our sins. Sin has brought complete ruin upon all aspects of creation 
and especially upon sinful mankind because we are the cause of it. Ours is the sin. Ours is the guilt. And in this man and before this crowd stands yet one more stark reminder of the fallen sinful world in which we live. Now Matthew seems almost matter of fact. I suppose in one way he intends to be. What Jesus can do for this man is beyond value and price. And yet there is a sense that for Jesus, this really is no big deal in terms of his ability to deal with this man's problems. So Matthew, without fuss, simply tells us that Jesus healed him. And the man immediately has sight and speech restored as the demons flee away, as they must. It is, of course, one more bewildering display of the power and authority that the Lord Jesus has, as is every miracle that he performs. And as with all other miracles, it's done without theatrics or fanfare. Just a saviour, overflowing with compassion and mercy and grace, setting free one more captive. He can do the same for you. But no one can bring you to Jesus like they did for this man. You must hear his voice. You must answer his call to come to him. You must repent of your sins and trust in him alone. And then you will be another captive set free by the God of all compassion and mercy and grace. Will you not come? Well, back to our story. And we see clearly everyone understands exactly what it is they've just witnessed. The evidence isn't the issue. How to explain it, that's the issue. How to explain it. On the one hand, you have the vast majority in verse 23. Could this be the son of David? Could this be the chosen one? Could this be the promised one? Could this be that king who will reign on David's throne forever over a kingdom that will never end? Is this God's Messiah? Seems to me they actually know deep down this has to be the case. Maybe the this is just one kind of, well, is there another alternative to explain this? But deep down they know. The Pharisees, though, the Pharisees, they are unable to dispute anything that has just taken place. They don't even try. What's the point? But what they do, they resort to trying, they try to discredit the whole thing 
by claiming that this has all been done under the power and the influence of Satan. Beelzebub is a name they use. That's just another way of referring to Satan. Beelzebub uh, was uh, believed to be the prince of the devils. Not dissimilar to how Paul refers to him as the prince of the power of the air in Ephesians chapter 2. But they're talking about Satan. See, it's not the evidence that's the issue. It's how to explain it, or rather, how to try and explain it away. How can we explain what Jesus did without admitting to who he really is? Nothing's changed in the world, you know. As Paul explains to us very clearly in his opening chapters to his letter to the Romans, lack of evidence is not the issue. It is not. Everyone knows that God is, says Paul. It's written in their soul. It's not lack of evidence that's the issue. But how can we explain everything without having to admit it? That's the world's conundrum. So we'll try and come up with other seemingly plausible theories to explain the evidence. Yes, this is what you see, but that's not the way to understand it. It happened like this. Hard, sinful hearts rejecting the truth and exchanging it for the lie. That's the Bible's explanation of the world we live in. That's exactly how people are today. That's what's going on within them. That's what's causing the the current moral corruption that we see happening all around us. The evidence is in front of them, but they refuse it, they reject it. How, How can we bring a different alternative explanation for these things that the world will accept in all of its fallenness and all of its degradation and in all of its deceitfulness. It's just the outpouring of sinful hearts set against God. So here's the humanist, the the atheist, the evolutionist, the abortionist, the gay and trans lobbyist presenting their increasingly warped version of it in our day. They know what all the evidence points to. The evidence isn't the issue. They refuse to accept the explanation. That's the issue. Their sinful hearts won't allow them to accept it. Because that's what sinful, unconverted hearts do. The Pharisees are the example of it in Jesus' day. The evidence is undeniable. But we refuse to accept what the evidence is pointing to about this Jesus. And instead, we are going to absolutely stick to our guns. This man is of the devil. What he's doing is of Satan. And that's how they try and deal with it. Because that's what sinful, unconverted hearts do. 
But here's the question. What is your heart saying this morning? Who is this Jesus? And so secondly, we move on to consider the Pharisees in a bit more detail now. And we see the Pharisees' abhorrent claim and Christ's reply. So this is verses 24 through to 29. And understanding all that's going on here will actually help us when we get to verses 31 and 32 in a little while. Here are a group of men who've been following Jesus very, very closely because they see him as a great threat. He's a threat to their authority. He's a threat to their, uh, their, their public place and position within the society, the society in which they live. Matthew first introduces us to the Pharisees in chapter 3, when they arrive at the River Jordan to see what all the fuss is about concerning John the Baptist. And John the Baptist's response is very telling, as he singles them out for particular condemnation, brood of vipers, an accusation that Jesus will also throw at them at one point. John the Baptist never says such things about the general population, but he says it about the Pharisees. Jesus makes reference to the Pharisees in the Sermon on the Mount in chapter 5 when he preaches that all of us, <clears throat> all of us, excuse me, all of us need a righteousness the likes of which you will never find in a Pharisee. And then in chapter 9, their open opposition against Jesus begins to emerge and only grows stronger and stronger to the point of what we saw last week at verse 14, the Pharisees went out and plotted against Jesus how they might destroy him. Bear that in mind for when we get to verses 31 and 32. Their hatred and rejection of Jesus is only increasing. The hardness of their hearts is only strengthening. Rather than being drawn to Jesus, they are being driven further and further away. And so very far away from him are they now that they attribute all that is being done as a work of Satan, no less. Now Jesus, he once more displays his divine wisdom, perceiving the thoughts of their hearts knowing precisely what they were devising against him. He knows the exact thoughts of all of our hearts too, you know. And Jesus, first of all, he lays bare how ridiculous their claim is in verses 25 and 26. Why on earth would Satan go to war against himself? It makes absolutely no sense. This is a ridiculous thing you've just said. Occasionally, during recent conflict, well, fairly recent conflicts in the Middle East, we would hear reports of NATO forces being lost to friendly fire, planes being shot down or land forces being bombed by their own side. Tragic mistakes, at least we hope they were. But friendly fire, not something you aim for in times of war. What kingdom 
What city, what family has ever survived civil war unscathed? The damage done is immense. The destruction caused lasts for years, sometimes for generations. Satan, seeking to overthrow and destroy his own work, no one's buying that. Then he looks at it from another standpoint in verses 27 and 28. There are younger men from amongst the tradition of the Pharisees who also have a reputation for being able to cast out demons. Now Jesus makes no comment about the validity of that claim. He doesn't take up the argument as whether or not they are actually doing it. But he just knows that there are these younger men from amongst the tradition of the Pharisees who are known to cast out demons, or that at least is the claim made about them. And so Jesus puts this question to the Pharisees. How is it that their own sons perform these very deeds? The same kind of thing that Jesus has just done. How are their sons doing it? How can they prove that their own young men are not using the power of Satan? How are the Pharisees able to affirm what their followers are doing and yet condemn Jesus when he does exactly the same thing? What measure are the Pharisees using to be able to make that kind of distinction? Now, he knows that the Pharisees will have no answer for this because they won't have thought this through. Those young men, he says to the Pharisees, they will be your judges. Now, what does Jesus mean by that? Well, he means this. If your followers, if these young men, if they judge that you are right about me, that I am casting out demons by the power of Satan, that will automatically cause people to question what they are doing. Well, if he's doing it by the power of Satan, who's to say that these young men are not doing it by the power of Satan? And if they're questioning those young men, they're also going to start questioning you Pharisees who are supporting them. But what if these same young men, what if they decide that, that you Pharisees are wrong about me? What if they decide that I am not casting out demons by the power of Satan, that it is all of God? Well, that then calls into question your, judge, your judgment about me. Whatever these young men decide, that's going to throw you Pharisees into, into a real conundrum. Whichever way these sons come down about these issues, that's going to make you Pharisees look very foolish. Because either you're telling lies about me because these things are of God, or you're supporting your own young men and what they're doing is just as dubious as what I'm doing in your eyes. And so Jesus, once more, he's, got, he's actually got the Pharisees over a barrel here. They've backed themselves up into this corner that they can't get out of. And Jesus knows it and he just puts it on them. 
And then he really gives them something to think about in verse 28. If what I'm doing is of God's Spirit, then God's kingdom has come upon you. All that's been promised, all that you've been waiting for, it is now here. Because these things I'm doing are the proof of it. In other words, if this is God's Spirit at work, everything about Christ is the fulfilment of the Old Testament regarding God's Messiah. And if that's true, you Pharisees, you have made the most monumental mistake, which of course they have. And for anyone today who denies and rejects Christ, you have made the most monumental mistake that you will ever make. And it's an error that will have repercussions upon you for all of eternity if you reject and deny him. Just as it will for the Pharisees, as we'll see shortly. So Jesus says in verse 29, imagine a thief planning to burgle the house of a heavyweight champion boxer. Imagine a thief planning to burgle the house of one of those men who's just one world's strongest man. Now, before you start wandering around his, pow- his house, pilfering all his goods, you are going to make sure that you have somehow managed to securely tie up that man, or you know you are in for the hiding of your life when he gets his hands on you. You say I'm doing this by the ruler of the demons. On the contrary, I have already bound him. I have already defeated him. And now I am casting out his demons. I am plundering Satan's kingdom because I've already dealt with Satan. That's what Jesus is saying. And Jesus continues to do that today through the mighty work of the gospel. Because by means of Christ's death and resurrection, Satan is a defeated foe. And he can set the captive free. Because he is who he says he is. Has he set you free? In the Lord Jesus Christ, you can be set free from the power and the penalty of sin. Because the one who would hold sway over you is a defeated foe. One day, Satan will receive the judgment and the penalty that he is due. Now, it's something of a mystery to us that for a time, God permits still Satan to have a limited sway over this world. Trust me, it is a limited sway. If Satan were unleashed to do all that he's capable of, and God withdrew his common grace from this world, you would not want to be around to see the consequences of that. Satan is a limited foe. And God's common grace upon us all keeps us, for the most part, 
from the worst that our sinful hearts would do despite some of the things that we see going on around us and some of the things that we read in history. Satan is a defeated enemy that you might be set free in Christ. And then Jesus this morning gives a most sober warning in the final three verses that we consider now. Verses 30 to 32 where Jesus gives a dire warning a dire warning. Because there is no place of neutrality when it comes to the person of Jesus Christ. You are either for him or you are against him. If you think this morning that you are someone who is sitting on the fence, you are mistaken. There is no, su- there is no such thing as undecided when it comes to the gospel. If you have not decided for Christ, then you are currently decided against him. That's what Jesus says. If someone offers you a gift at Christmas or on your birthday, you choose one of two things. You choose either to accept and receive it, or you choose to reject and refuse it. You might say, I'm undecided whether or not to take it. But until you do take it, you actually continue to be in a position of having refused it. Because with a gift, you can only do one or the other. You can either take it or you can refuse it. The choice is up to you. When the Everton and Liverpool players walk out onto the pitch for a derby game, have you noticed that all the Everton players are wearing all the Everton kit and all the Liverpool players are wearing all the Liverpool kit? Well, of course they are, you say. Has there ever been a derby game and one player has walked out onto the pitch half in blue and half in red? Nonsense, you say. There have been a few who bravely have swapped from one team to the other over the years. But there's never been a player who's walked out onto the pitch half and half. What a ridiculous notion. There can be no such thing on such an occasion as the derby. You are either red or you are blue. That's it. Yes. If that is true for something as feeble and futile as a game of football. How much more does that hold true for the person of the Lord Jesus Christ and how much more important is it that you think about it? Where do you stand in relation to the Lord Jesus Christ this morning? And then there's this, what seems to be a very difficult saying of Jesus in verses 31 and 32. Every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven men, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven men. Anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man, it will be for, that's Jesus, will be forgiven him. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit, it will not be forgiven him, either in this age or in the age to come. In other words, you're doomed for eternity. 
What does Jesus mean? Well, all of us in our sin are blasphemers who at one time and in some measure rejected God, denounced his name, denounced Christ and said all manner of things against him, even in our hearts, if not with our lips. And yet, here we are, saved by grace. Here you are, saved by grace. A sinner, a blasphemer, converted. This blaspheming which may be forgiven, even the speaking against Christ, Well, here Jesus is speaking of that very general reviling of God which is found in every unregenerate heart and which is heard coming from all unregenerate lips. How many have turned against God and against Christ, blamed them for all manner of calamities and difficulties which have come their way. Sometimes even Christians find themselves doing that for a time. The name of God, the name of Christ, used as a curse word by those who are lost in their sins. Yet such may be saved. Such are saved. Such were some of you, Paul would say. If these things were not so, no one could ever be saved. But this blaspheming against the Spirit of God runs much deeper than that. And it proves to be more final than that. It is God in the person of his spirit who does the renewing, saving work of grace in our lives. It is he who does the enlightening of our minds. It is he who brings the softening to our hearts. It is he who does that inward persuading and who brings God's enabling to our once dead souls and makes us alive. This is all the Holy Spirit's doing. The Lord Jesus is indwelt and empowered by the Holy Spirit without measure, the Bible tells us. And this total rejection by the Pharisees, who would attribute the Spirit's work to Satan, and seek the destruction of this one in whom the Spirit is working. This is of a different sort. This is on a different level. To reject God the Spirit and his work. To say, this is of Satan. To say of him, this is the stuff of utter nonsense. To harden your heart against him and to continue in that hardening, like the Pharisees are doing, that is to be lost indeed forever. You will never come to that place of forgiveness when that has taken hold of your heart. Some have helpfully made the contrast between the denial of Peter at the time of Christ's death, with the denial of Judas. took place, you remember, during the the night when Jesus was arrested and betrayed. Now, on the face of it, from the outside looking in, there's not an awful lot of difference between the denial of Peter and and the denial of Judas. But there's some very significant differences between the two. 
Peter's denial was a running away from Christ in fear. The denial of Judas was a coming to Christ to fight against him. It's quite a difference. The denial of Peter was temporary. The denial of Judas was permanent. Peter was later remorseful and repentant. But the remorse that Judas felt never reached repentance. Peter was restored by a gracious saviour. Judas simply took his own life, lost and condemned. Big difference between the two. There are those who end up in a position of utter lostness. Even despite all the spiritual blessings that they've known, like the Pharisees had. Their ongoing refusal becomes a permanent refusal. And they are lost forever. To keep rejecting the light of the gospel causes them to be lost in utter darkness for all eternity. To keep on rejecting the prompting of God's Spirit is to find that one day such promptings have ceased. Such promptings will never return. It's too late. And with your hard heart, you don't even care. This is why the Bible impresses upon every single one of us that today must be the day for your salvation. Today must be the day for you to turn to Christ. Because the day will come. It's too late. It's passed you by. You'll be lost forever. The hardening of your heart will prove irreversible. It'll be gone. So today you must look to Christ. Be convinced. The evidence isn't the problem. You know that only too well. The problem is all the excuses that you keep coming up with in order to try and deflect it all away. Seek him while he may be found. Call on him while he is near. To know him is life eternal. Continue walking away and one day you will be so far away there's no coming back. Just who is Jesus? You need to settle that answer today.